from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post. This is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 12th. Today, dozens arrested in an alleged college admission scheme, suicides in the VA parking lot, and the very particular rules for naming planetary bodies. Operation Varsity Blues culminated early this morning when approximately 300 special agents from the FBI and the IRS criminal investigations set out to arrest 46 individuals across the country for their roles in an international college admissions bribery and money laundering scam. On Tuesday, the Justice Department announced the end of a year-long investigation. We're talking about deception and fraud. Fake test scores, fake athletic credentials, fake photographs, bribed college officials. They were looking into a massive cheating and bribery scheme to get the kids of rich parents into college. A central defendant in the scheme, William Singer, will plead guilty today to charges of racketeering conspiracy, money laundering conspiracy. All told, dozens of people were charged. They had charged a whole bunch of people, 50 people, in connection with what they say is the biggest college admission scam that the Justice Department has ever charged. Matt Zapatosky is a national security reporter. Yeah, I cover the Justice Department for the Post. And he stopped by our studio to talk with us. Oh, my God. Yeah, this one's crazy. After the Justice Department's whirlwind of a press conference. So the U.S. attorney in Boston, an FBI official and an IRS official, kind of went out and described this massive scandal. It kind of centered around this one guy named Rick Singer, who was just a longtime college advisor, I guess is the best way to describe it. But he had relationships with college coaches, like testing officials, like SAT, ACT type people. Rick Singer founded what he called a nonprofit, this group called the Key Worldwide Foundation. And, you know, if you look on it on their website, it's ostensibly like a foundation that helps advance the interest of kids. Prosecutors say that was sort of all crap. This nonprofit was essentially like a slush fund. So he would take in money from parents, parents who wanted better test scores for their kids or who wanted their kids to be recruited, you know, air quotes, as athletes. And who are the people who allegedly tried to get their kids into college in this way? Yeah. So the two most interesting are um, Felicity Huffman, who's an actress. From and, Desperate um, Housewives. From Desperate Housewives. I have to admit, I haven't seen the show, but I am familiar with her in the name. And Lori Laughlin from Full House. There was also the chairman of a big law firm. Other people who just had money. I mean, not names that anyone would recognize, but very wealthy people who had tens of thousands of dollars to throw around just so their kid could get a 33 on the ACT. And they would pay this guy, Rick Singh, to make things happen for them. Sometimes it was rigging a kid's test scores. What do you mean by rigging a kid's test yeah. score? So when you go and take a standardized test, you sort of go into a room and there's a person who monitors you and you fill it out, you turn it into them, and it's sort of a very secure process. 
But if you know all the players involved, you can rig it in your favor. So this guy, Mr. Singer, knew the testing officials, the people who would sort of monitor you taking a test and making sure it was above board. So he would pay them to kind of look the other way. And he also had this person who he would pay while they were looking the other way to go in and like change kids' answers. So if I were a kid who had rich parents who uh, they were trying to get me into Yale, let's say, I would go and take my test. And then either this guy that Mr. Singer had paid would sit and coach me about what to write while an official looked the other way, or I would sort of turn in my test and he would go and correct my answers afterwards. Oh my and gosh. he did it just, it's not like he had inside information about what the correct answers were the U.S. attorney sort of described today. He was just a really smart guy who could get whatever score he wanted. And sometimes there would be like intentional missing because he was aiming for a score that wouldn't arouse suspicion. They didn't want to make it too obvious. Yeah. So not a 1600, but right. maybe somewhere in the 14s or 15s. Right. So that's what I mean by rigging. It's essentially like having a guy to either coach a kid through a test or to correct their answers when they're done. Wealthy parents paid Singer about $25 million in total to guarantee their children's admission to elite schools, including Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, the University of Southern California, the University of Texas, UCLA, and Wake Forest. And then what are some of the other crazy things that prosecutors are alleging? The other kind of wild thing, when you're applying to college, I didn't know this, but apparently when you're applying to college, it can help you get in if you're an athlete. I guess I, I broadly knew that, but not like if you're a star quarterback. It can just help you if you're being recruited as an athlete for like the crew team or the soccer team, a, a lesser known thing. So one of the things he would do is try to make kids who weren't athletes seem like athletes and get coaches to essentially recruit non-athletes pretending they were athletes. So he would have coaches, again, who were on the take. He would pay bribes to them, and they would then say, oh, yes, I'm recruiting this student to be on the crew team. Or, uh, you know, the most notable example, I think, in there is the Yale soccer team. The Yale soccer coach, I think, admitted taking like a $400,000 bribe. $400,000? So then they would say, yes, we're, we're recruiting that person. Sometimes they would need proof of that. So... Mr. Singer or the parents would Photoshop pictures of their kid's face on a real athlete's body, <laughs> or they would, in one instance, and I think this this might have been the case with Lori Laughlin, they sort of put their kid on a rowing machine because she was ostensibly being recruited to a participating crew, though she didn't. I mean, the thing of it is these people weren't actually athletes. It would just help them get in if they were perceived as athletes. So that's how Mr. Singer would kind of help them. And then what happens when they got to college and they were clearly not able to participate in the sport that they were recruited for? That's a great question. So sometimes apparently they would try a little while and quit. Sometimes they would fake an injury and then they would be out of it, but they're still sort of in the door then. The U.S. attorney, I don't think, described any case where the person just went on to actually be a great athlete, but they would like find a reason pretty quickly to just get out of it. So what are the potential consequences for this? Well, prison. I mean, these people will go to prison. It's sort of interesting and, and almost funny. But the consequences for these people is they go to go to prison. Rick Singer is this afternoon expected to plead guilty. He turned cooperator in the case. So he sort of flipped on all these parents who he helped. But oh, he'll man. plead guilty to a racketeering charge, which is a very serious thing. And, the, you know, these people face real criminal charges. This isn't like they're just sort of exposed and embarrassed. These are criminal charges that could result in, in prison time. 
And what happens to the kids? That's a great question. The U.S. attorney was asked that at this press conference. And essentially, he said that's up to the colleges. But this is recent. He said that this investigation has just spanned about only the past year. And these kids are in colleges. But I think it is important to note, too, the U.S. attorney said that these colleges, as institutions, weren't in on it. This is not a situation that you sort of hear about, like a parent donates a building and then they get in. This is like lower level people at the colleges, coaches, in one instance, an athletics official or like standardized testing officials who aren't even really affiliated with the college who are all in on it. They'll have a tough decision to make, I guess. I mean, I don't know. And it doesn't seem like in all these instances the kids were in on it, though maybe in some they were. I was just sort of rereading the indictment before I came down here, and there was one where a mother wanted her son to take a test instead of this person who could take it and get any score just so he thought he was actually taking it. So in some instances... (laughs) So he didn't know that he was... Right. So in some instances, the kids aren't even in on it. Is it really fair to rip them out of college? It's going to be a thorny sort of moral question for colleges. You mentioned the idea that, that this isn't like paying money for a building at a university and getting your kid in that way. And that's what I find so ironic about this case is that there are already so many legal ways to get your kid into college if you're rich. You can give a big donation. You can pay for private one-on-one tutoring, and that demonstrated that that will get your kid a pretty good score. You can pay to have your kid play a sport that's a less competitive sport and get in with recruiters that way. You don't have to go <laughs> this crazy way. And yet these people still allegedly found a really bizarre way of trying to get their kids into these fancy schools. Yeah, we were talking about that sort of as the news was breaking. I was talking with Devlin Barrett, my colleague on the Justice Department, and it's like, why? Why would you do this? They have extremely wealthy parents. One of them is like the co-chairman of this huge law firm. You've got two celebrity actors, but, you know, names that you just say and anyone sort of knows. Like, why didn't you just donate a lot? You know, why are you paying this third party? And I don't know the answer to that. I haven't yet been able to talk to the celebrities or any of the parents who are involved about why to do this, though just in talking with colleagues, I think the one difference is it's a little more of a guarantee. The parents charged today, despite already being able to give their children every legitimate advantage in the college admissions game, instead chose to corrupt and illegally manipulate the system for their benefit. There's some more guarantee to getting that high score on the SAT. A lot more risk, though, clearly, too. What's going to happen next in this case? The feds have a lot of evidence. They had wiretaps. They have this guy who was the center of it all, who has now cooperated and presumably has shared all sorts of records. They have a mountain of evidence. You can sort of see why this would be so appetizing for the FBI, for federal law enforcement. This is like a question of fundamental fairness. It's not like, oh, haha, rich parents bribe and get their kids into school. There are victims here in the view of the FBI, and that's the kids who didn't get these spots that maybe rightfully they should have because kids whose parents had a lot of money did. And the U.S. attorney at this press conference made a point of that. He said, look, every year, hundreds of thousands of hardworking, talented students strive for admission to elite schools. And that system is a zero-sum game. For every student admitted through fraud, an honest, genuinely talented student was rejected. We're not going to look the other way. 
law enforcement, of course, looks for crimes, and there are crimes here, and that's why they have a hook, racketeering, honest services fraud. But, you know, there is also sort of a public interest, and you can see that that really moved the U.S. attorney thinking about the kids who, who didn't get in because these people who he said got in because of bribes did get in. But we'll see. I mean, now there's going to be a court battle, a big, sprawling court battle involving a lot of parents who are accused of paying bribes, essentially, so their kids could go to college, and and we'll sort of see what happens. Matt Zapatosky reports on the Justice Department for The Post. you start by reading this email? Good evening. I just finished reading your article about veterans committing suicide on hospital grounds, and I have a few experiences regarding one of the facilities you mentioned. I'm an Iraq veteran and deployed to Fallujah and al-Assad during my tour. I suffer from chronic PTSD to such a degree that just over a year ago, I attempted suicide. How many emails like this did you get? When the story was first posted online, I woke up the next morning to over 35 emails. And throughout the day, it was probably about four to five an hour. They continued for weeks. Even six weeks later, I still receive emails. I'm Emily Wax Thibodeau, and I'm a national reporter. Last month, Emily published a story about a disturbing trend. Veterans taking their own lives on the grounds of Veterans Affairs hospitals, often in cars parked in the VA parking lot. And the goal of her reporting was to figure out why. The VA becomes a symbol of the war that they fought, the government that can't seem to help them, the PTSD or... The stuff that happened in Iraq or Afghanistan or previously that they're not getting the correct help for. So they often say even in suicide notes on YouTube in some cases that they are doing this to draw attention to the problems inside the programs and the problem, the larger problem of what they have been through. And they want people to hear it. So when they leave a note saying, I did this because the VA system failed me. They want people to fix it. Veterans are significantly more likely than the general population to die by suicide. But to get help for PTSD and other mental health issues, they have to navigate the VA system's massive bureaucracy. And that can be frustrating. In some cases, vets have to prove that their injuries are connected to their service, which can require a lot of paperwork and appeals. Emily first heard about this issue of parking lot suicides several years ago from a whistleblower within the VA. And she struggled for a long time about how to report on it. In some ways, you don't want people to read it and stay away from getting help. On the other hand, A lot of the families actually really wanted to talk, which is counterintuitive. They felt so 
honored to be able to go over what led their family member to this point and how to fix it. So a lot of the families were so brave and outspoken about what went wrong and what needed to happen so that this phenomenon doesn't keep happening. It left me a hard job. One of those families that Emily spoke with was the family of a young man named John Toombs, who served in Afghanistan. His dad, David, said that when John got home, he struggled to reconcile his life over there with his life here. When he was deployed, he was a, a, a part of something something bigger than himself. And so the camaraderie and the brotherhood, but when they come back, even though they still do their drills once a month, when he decided not to re-enlist in 2014, I believe it was, that's when he you could see him start to go downhill. That slope got a little bit steeper. I think John, like a lot of veterans returning home, had a hard time transitioning. In the military, you share sleeping places, you share meals, you have friends you can talk to about what's going on. People understand. You don't have to explain to them everything. You return home and it's almost like you're on another planet. He never complained about it. Never had anything bad to say about it. He kept a lot of things in. He wasn't somebody to openly discuss situations. Matter of fact, my mother told him that he should apply for the FBI because he, he would he would not talk about anything. John finally got into a residential treatment program at a VA facility in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. John was said to be someone who was really improving by one of the nurses who was working with him. But he was still struggling with PTSD and depression and anxiety. Sometimes he would have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, and he would be late to pick up his medications. So it was just little things like that once we come through all the records. He was never violent. He uh, never threatened anybody. Most everybody that I've talked to that has reached out since then said that, you know, he was would give you the shirt off his back. He was very thankful and very friendly, but he had days that... Like most people on heavy medications, there are days when you just don't want to talk to anybody. John was eventually kicked out of the program for relatively minor infractions. They were basically penalizing him for the very reasons he was there. And that same morning, the day before Thanksgiving 2016, he took his own life in an abandoned building on the grounds of the VA hospital. David Toombs says that, from everything that he's heard, the program that John was in, in Tennessee, has improved a lot since then. You know, it kills me that it took my son's best for him to do it. What Emily learned from her reporting is that some of these problems are not specific to the VA. They're problems with healthcare and mental health facilities in the U.S. in general. The environments are very sanitized, they're very cold, they have very strict rules. You're taking people who are at their lowest point mentally and putting them into an atmosphere that may not be nurturing. For instance, in John Toombs' case, there was a nurse who had a suggestion to let the veterans keep 
clocks and have a coffee pot so that when they were woken up for their medications at 6 a.m., they would be able to then go back to sleep and collect their medications by 9 a.m. They weren't allowed to have clocks or phones in their rooms. And so that little switch can make the atmosphere better. And John actually was late to his medication because he would just fall back asleep. So one reason can be as simple as the program's While they say they're trying to improve all the time, veterans are the best people to ask what they need to work on. Other times, the system is so overwhelmed, both in the VA and in the private sector, that records can be wrong, that there's no follow-ups made, that there's confusion over whether the veteran has a gun in their car. That was the case with Justin Miller. He was a Marine Corps musician who took his own life outside of the Minneapolis Department of Veterans Affairs Hospital. The access to firearms issue should have put a red flag on his file from the beginning, and for whatever reason, it didn't. The VA says that Justin's death was one of 19 suicides that occurred on its campuses from October 2017 to November 2018. But some advocates say that that number is actually higher. Justin's sister, Alyssa Harrington, said that this wasn't the life that she expected for him. My brother was a very talented musician. And so when he was in high school, he was looking at the different things that he could do. And a recruiter approached him and said, you know, you can play in the military bands. He knew that he would be asked to do guard duty on base because that was his secondary MOS. So he he knew that was a possibility, but I don't think it was something that they had really talked about in in terms of what that meant fully. Because it wasn't just him, it was the entire band who was going over there with the same secondary MOS of being base security. We'd hear the funny stories about how it's a slightly ridiculous idea to give a bunch of band geeks walkie-talkies that had musical tones on the number pad because they would spend their days sending each other musical notes using the keypad. And then we would also hear stories about how he had to shoot people. I got a lot of emails about how... Veterans go to war, and they're often asked to do things that they regret or that they feel morally confused about. It's really tough to be a soldier, and both men and women come back with high levels of PTSD and depression, and a lot of the emails detailed why they were suicidal and why they were trying so hard to get their mental health under control. There's also the trauma of seeing your friends get hurt or killed, and just the trauma of being afraid all the time. David Toombs said that once his son did open up about PTSD. Once he got in the program and started learning more about PTSD in himself, he told me, he said, you know, sometimes PTSD isn't so much of what happened to you, it's the anticipation of constantly wondering what's getting ready to happen. Emily says that all of the veterans and families that she spoke with for her story and afterward, they said that they're glad that the VA is there, 
They just want the system to get better. It's important that we talk about it and important that we continue to have these conversations because without being honest about it, without engaging everyone in the conversation, we can't come to good solutions. And the VA is a huge part of that. There is no desire for myself or my family to destroy the VA. We want the VA to be there as a public health portion, as well as a crisis intervention center. I mean, one of the things that the VA needs to do is make sure that their staff is supported and paid and trained. It's so hard for me to hear these stories from people who've worked at the VA about how unsupported they feel. Because I know that this has nothing to do with the care of the providers. I know that the people who were caring for my brother were doing what they could with what they can and that this likely is haunting them as much as it's haunting us. The VA has a new executive director for suicide prevention, and she said that the agency now trains parking lot attendants and patrols on suicide intervention. The agency is also expanding its suicide prevention efforts and piloting a peer mentoring program. The Trump administration has said that preventing veteran suicide is its top priority. You can read Emily Wax Thibodeau's story on VA parking lot suicides at postreports.com. Now, one more thing from science reporter Sarah Kaplan, a story about celestial names. So last year, scientists announced that they had detected 12 previously undiscovered moons orbiting around Jupiter. Most of them were pretty tiny and hadn't been seen before. The moons were discovered by astronomers associated with the Carnegie Institution for Science. And now that they've been found, they need names. So the Carnegie Institution of Science sent out a press release saying that they need help finding names. They asked people on Twitter and on social media to contribute. And I'm looking at this news release and I'm like, that sounds cool. You get to name a new piece of real estate in the solar system. But then you see all of the rules for naming them. A moon of Jupiter has to be named for a lover or an offspring of the god known as Jupiter or Zeus, depending on whether you're looking at Greek or Roman. can't have a name that's associated with any military or political or religious. It cannot be offensive to any language. It can't be named for anybody alive. It can't be named for somebody's pet. If it's retrograde, it's prograde, the name has to end in an A. So that seems like a lot of rules just to come up with a name for this dinky little space rock. But Sarah says that this complicated system is there for a reason. There are rules for naming basically everything in the solar system, and they come from the International Astronomical Union. 
It was founded in 1919. And previous to the IAU, people sort of just named stuff willy-nilly. And so there were fights over whether or not Uranus should be named Uranus or George, (laughs) which was the King of England at the time that William Herschel discovered the planet. You know, multiple astronomers would say that they discovered the same asteroid and each give it different names. And so when the IIU came about, they were like, we need to bring some order to this chaos. And so they began establishing committees and working groups, what scientists love best, to sort of, you know, put things in order. And one of the roles of the working groups is to establish these thematic guidelines for different features and different planetary bodies. So, for example... On Titan, which is a moon of Saturn, there are mountains that are named for mountains on Middle-earth. In the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring. The magical landscape of the Lord of the Rings books. Features on Venus are all named for women, except for one, (laughs) which is named after the scientist whose discoveries were really important for our first observations of Venus. James Clerk Maxwell. Asteroids are one of the few things in the solar system that can be named for living people. So there are asteroids named for all four beetles. Across the universe. All three Bronte sisters. Athletes, musicians, movie stars. There's a Tom Hanks asteroid. There's a Meg Ryan asteroid. I turn on my computer. So, you know, maybe they're sending emails to each other. You've got mail. Um, So Sarah says that if you've got a name for one of Jupiter's many new moons... All you have to do is tweet your suggested moon name to at Jupiter Lunacy. And you have to include the hashtag name Jupiter's moons and tell Carnegie why you picked it. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. And if you do decide to tweet a suggested name, remember that you have to make sure that your suggestion fits all of the requirements. Must be 16 characters or fewer. It can't be related to any kind of commercial. It can't be too similar to any existing names of names of That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.